Hi folks, Patrick here, your host. Welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Happy New Year to you all. This is, of course, the first episode of 2023 and I hope you guys are feeling revitalized and ready to take on the year ahead. Today on the show, you'll get to hear my recent interview with Dr. Helen Ree, Professor of the History of Christianity in Religious Studies at Westmont College and author of the recently released book Illness, Pain and Healthcare in Early Christianity, published with Erdmans. This was a really fun conversation. We got to dive into how the early Christian church thought about this fundamental topic of life and about the influence on how they thought from the Hebrew Bible and uh, the Greco-Roman world. And of course, we also got to speak about the theological side of things, questions of how to cope with sickness, how to wrestle with the retributive model of sickness that's sometimes found in the Old Testament, um, the question of miraculous healing. I think you'll all find something of benefit from this conversation. So without further ado, let's get on to the show and I hope you all enjoy it. Well, hello, Helen. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, grateful for your invitation and excited to be on the show. My pleasure. So today we're going to be speaking about your recently released book, Illness, Pain and Healthcare in Early Christianity, published with Erdman's. Uh, thanks a million, of course, for producing this resource for all of us Bible and early Christianity geeks out there. And I'm super excited to get into the content of that with you. But before that, I think um, the audience would love to get to know you a bit personally you know, for some fun questions. Sure, yeah. Great. Of course, in light of today's topic, I thought it was only fair that I ask whether you ever worked in healthcare or if you ever considered becoming a doctor, Helen. Mm. Well, um, I have never considered uh, uh, being becoming a doctor myself, and I have never actually worked in a healthcare per se. However, my familiarity with the healthcare system here in the U.S. is mainly as being a patient. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I have a long sort of uh, uh, years of uh, chronic pain and chronic illness. So mainly uh, that's my interaction with the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I have also had an interaction with the U.S. healthcare system in that I actually. Um, work in administration for a u.s hospital even though i i live in ireland oh. <laughs> so um i also um understand the um the complexities of your system and everything and it's, mm. it's really fascinating you of course did choose biblical studies and um or early christian history um so some 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 like amalgamation of those two yeah. things anyway in light of that you know i'd, I'd also like to know what is a field of biblical studies that you'll never dare approach mm. and why yeah uh, I um, uh, my main sort of focus is early Christianity uh, so second through the fifth centuries and I have a minor in the New Testament but uh, I am actually daunted by the field of the Old Testament particularly um, you know I mean of course it's more complex in terms of uh, you know, it's written history and the composition and all the sort of different fields within the Old Testament. So I am actually quite intimidated by that. 
Hmm. You wouldn't get that impression reading this book because there's a big, big long section oh. on the Old Testament, you know? Yeah, and it's, and it's And it's good. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit as well. Mm. Um, all you need to do is just um, pick up a commentary on the source criticism of the Pentateuch and <laughs> <laughs> it, it terrifies you, isn't that right? Right, right. Yeah. And of course, the other um, part of your vocation mm. that is noteworthy is that you're an ordained minister in the Free Methodist Church. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious to know, has has this always been your denomination and like just what you like about this church tradition? Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, was raised as a Methodist here in the United States. There's a United Methodist. Uh, so I was part of the United Methodist for a while and then um, became a Baptist during college and uh, and also was part of a sort of a charismatic movement in the during the seminary, uh, and I pastored the church um, in a more sort of a non-denominational churches, and then now I'm sort of uh, back in the Free Methodist Church. So in a sense, I feel like I'm sort of, kind of coming home, you know, in a sense, theologically. And what I really appreciate about Free Methodist Church is we often actually um, say about the five freedoms we have. So first of all, the freedom of all races to worship and live together. So Free Methodists originally were abolitionists uh, during the you know the time in the U.S. Um, so free means uh, freeing the slaves uh, in that sense. Um, and then the second freedom we also talk about is a freedom of women to serve and lead in the church. So um, that's also very significant for me, especially as a part of the ordained minister of the Free Methodist Church. Uh, and then another freedom we talk about is a freedom of the poor to be treated with dignity in the churches and the world. So another meaning of free, a free Methodist church and free, that means uh, free pews. So in the 1860s, I mean, the main practice actually prevalent practice was renting the pews uh, with, to those who had means to pay. Mm -hmm. And Free Methodist Church insisted upon uh, providing the free pews for those who could not actually afford to uh, pay for the rents. Um, so that's another freedom and a couple others, freedom of lay people to participate in the decision-making process along with clergy. And finally, freedom of the Holy Spirit to worship. So we often talk about these five freedoms and I really resonate with them. Just uh, on the last note of the, um, you said freedom of spirit, and you also mentioned being in a charismatic Church. What do you call the Free Methodist Church? Charismatic, or is it kind of more uh, li well liturgical? I suppose that's kind of maybe a false di dichotomy, but I'm um, curious to know. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, within Free Methodist churches, there's a wide range of uh, styles of worship. So more, some Free Methodist churches are more quote unquote charismatics, more free flowing sort of worship. We are sort of in the middle. Uh, our particular church in Santa Barbara. Uh, so we have uh, sort of a set sort of a uh, liturgy and uh, and yet people, um, you know, within that, when we uh, have praises and uh, worship, people are free to engage in whatever the way they feel led by the spirit. So 
I would say we're sort of uh, more in the middle. Well, moving from one modern church to the early church, it might be good at this point to get into the substance of your new book. This is, of course, again, illness, pain and healthcare in early Christianity. And the audience can find that if they click on the link in the description. Um, I, I think at the outset, you know, one of the things I'm curious to know is, is whether the COVID pandemic had any inspiring role in the creation of this book or if it was in the background at all while you were researching and writing? Uh, well, the short answer is no, because I began researching for this project in 2017. And of course, back then we had no idea. I had no idea about the, what would be coming. But, you know, I uh, wrote a book called The Loving the Poor, Saving the Rich back in the 2012. And I wrote a little bit about the early Christian care of the sick. Uh, in that book, especially second and third centuries. So I wanted to investigate the topic more in relation to early Christian understanding of health and illness, but I couldn't really find the time or space to fit those into this uh, that book. So uh, it just became a separate sort of a broader sort of project, really engaging more with Greco-Roman understanding of health, illness, and healthcare. So that's one reason um, how I actually started, uh, why I started this project. And second reason is that, as I mentioned before, I have a longstanding chronic pain and illness issues. So uh, I had a personal curiosity in examining the early Christian narratives and theology of pain. So that's how I got to include a specific chapter on pain um, uh, in this book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of uh, academic work is secretly autobiographical, you could say. So that's that's cool. And it also interests me what you said about, you know, you just had like this little section uh, that was about healthcare in your earlier book. And that reminds me of the fact that a lot of books start as footnotes almost, don't they? Right. So, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Now. I think something I've heard about the world that you're speaking about in this book, you know, the the world, whether that be kind of the the world of the the Hebrew Bible that um that scares you, or the world of um you know the the Greco-Roman world, or the world of you know the uh, later Roman Empire. I've heard it said that you know if if me and you were to were to go back to this um place just in the time machine, we would be dead within. A couple of weeks just because of the you know the state of things the state of healthcare and the state of you know epidemics and all that do you think that's true or is that something of, a, of an exaggeration uh, that's a very interesting question and a very imaginative uh, question i suppose that's very possible because of um uh the frequency of the pestilence and the frequency of course there's no uh, like a preventative sort of a medicines during that time. Um, and our immune system would be such very different from probably how it worked back then. So we would be very susceptible to uh, the germs and other sort of a sources of uh, illness and diseases, probably. Mm. And of course, it is quite a chilling world in that respect as well. Like I remember you talking at one point in your book about, I think, a plague that started in Ethiopia, um, I think you mentioned, and you, 
I think the quote in the book I have is modern calculation suggests that two thirds of ancient Alexandria's population might have perished. Mm. And I mean, that's just like, you know, thank God for modern medicine, just reading that, you know, when it comes to like pre-modern views of health and disease, which of course you're, you're, you are exploring in this book, you know, um, it's very easy for us to look down our noses at our ancestors, you know, with their non-germ theory views of the subject. And um, what is some advice you have for, you know, avoiding this, you know, keeping our humility? Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, you, I, I appreciate that you mentioned actually humility. So that's the virtue that is most necessary for any historian and anyone who actually reads history. And I actually quite emphasize that whenever I teach, uh, so I teach uh, early, for example, early um, and medieval Christian history to uh, this semester. And um, his, uh, humility is one of the most important sort of virtues and qualities that we need to cultivate. It's not automatic. So we actually have to be very intentional about cultivating it. So when I teach um, any subject in church history, so I always tell uh, students or other audience to read and understand any subject in its proper historical and cultural or even social context. Um, so it's always easy to critique uh, pre-modern views, not only on health or disease, but other topics um, as moderns. But we have a historical hindsight and we have a historical development that the pre-moderns, they didn't have. So, and our critique itself reflects our own historical and cultural context. So, which means that we are limited sort of in our own cultural context anyways. So the pre-modern view of health and disease actually worked in their own context. Um, and in fact, they were, I would say, more holistic and even inclusive than our contemporary sort of fixation on a biomedical level or biomedical, biomedical model of health and disease, uh, which can be very reductive. So I think, uh, you know, our contemporary sort of a fixation on biomedical model of health and um, disease can be um, too limited. Now we actually began talking about the spiritual aspect of health, not only physical, but also spiritual, emotional aspect of uh, those who are suffering. Um, but um, the pre-modern views of health actually incorporated all of those. Um, so I would say there's uh, some good things that we can actually learn from the pre-modern views of health and disease. Mm. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. And I suppose another thing we have to keep in mind is that people in a thousand years are going to be saying the exact same thing about us, aren't they? Exactly. Right. There's, of course, a, a variety of different views you're surveying in this book. You know, there's, a, I think, a, a quite a strong focus on early Christianity, as the title promises. Um, but you also talk about, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible and you um, talk about um, Greco-Roman medicine and all that and um in our in our email exchange um you mentioned that one of the ideas that's most difficult for us to understand from this period in relation to healthcare is this idea of retributive 
mm-hmm. um, model of healthcare. And I'm wondering if you could like explain that just a little bit to the listeners so they could understand that. So this retributive model of um, disease or sickness, um, I would say many in the Old Testament uh, narratives and to an extent also Greco-Roman actually narratives characterizes uh, God in the Hebrew Bible or, or other gods in the Greco-Roman sort of a model as a giver of both health and disease based on people's uh, obedience or disobedience to uh, his uh, commandments. So if people obey God's law, God will reward them with health and prosperity. But if they don't, God will send them diseases as a punishment. So therefore, there is a paradigm of uh, sin slash illness on the one hand and the forgiveness slash healing on the other. Uh, um, so I would, yeah, that, that will be the retribution, retributive actually model of fitness. Of course, your book is more historical than it is, you know, pastoral or theological. But of course, um, this, that idea um, can be quite, you know, disturbing uh, for some people uh, theologically. And I imagine it's probably disturbing to you um, for a certain extent as well. But I'm wondering, like, how, how have you like thought through this? Theologically, like, how have you made sense of it? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, my sort of model, I would actually like to look at the New Testament. Uh, so in light of um, what we've been talking about, because in my sort of interpretation, New Testament's trajectory, trajectory uh, is actually different from the Old Testament or the Greco-Roman. Uh, understanding of this kind of retributive sort of model. So um, in the New Testament, um, there are about 28 uh, healing stories of Jesus in the Gospels, but only there are two particular stories, that of the paralyzed man in the Synoptic Gospels, and then another one of uh, healing of crippled man at Bethesda in John, Uh, There are only these two stories that reveal any connection between the personal sin and illness. Uh, Rather, I think New Testament, uh, the most of the New Testament sort of cases, they uh, talk about uh, sickness or illness as a matter of just natural um, causes, not really, you know, uh, caused by God in per se, or there are actually uh, there are cases of actually uh, the illness attributed to demons. About five cases in the New Testament, but the rest of it actually is attributed to just natural causes. So um, Jesus actually, in most of the healing stories of Jesus, um, the, there is no divine ideology, um, and especially in healing of a crippled and bent over women on Sabbath in Luke, and also in the healing of a man born blind in John, Jesus clearly rejects people's assumption that the illness resulted from any personal or parental sin. And most importantly, Jesus' own suffering and death uh, clearly breaks with the idea of retribution in my mind as all parts of the New Testament affirm that Jesus indeed died not for his own sin, 
but for the sins of all others. Mm, I, I think that's a very interesting Christocentric um, pr perspective you're offering there. And I, and you know, it has always struck me how non-judgmental Jesus is when he encounters sickness. And you know, he's not saying, "Man, look at what your what your sins have done to you. Repent, and I might decide to heal you." Uh, there's always a very moving uh, component there, and as you say, uh, a non-retributive perspective on other suffering for the most part. You know, something you also bring out in your book is that the Old Testament itself has this perspective in parts. You know, we might think of Job or the the suffering servant, or and I'm actually curious to get your perspective on this. What about what about the barrenness narratives? You know, you don't seem to get the sense that God is punishing these people who can't conceive, the likes of, you know, Sarah or Hannah. Yeah, right. I think that that's a fascinating example where um, God both actually hears their prayers, or I mean, particularly on Hannah, and recognizes but it, what, what's interesting is that the description of uh, God is the one who closes the room and God is the one who actually opens the womb. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's just an interesting connection you're kind of bringing up. Okay, yeah. So that is something I'm going to have to think over a little bit because it definitely is complex, um, as you've said, how the Old Testament authors thought about this issue. And, you know, just, just switching gears a little bit, I'd like to talk a little bit about another section of history that you dive into in this book. This is, of course, the second century AD on. Uh, and, you know, the majority of your book is taken up with this period. And this really interests me because this is a period of history that us Protestants, you know, were kind of notorious for neglecting. And I feel that if I was in your position, I would just be constantly looking with one eye back to the New Testament. So I'm curious to know, like, understand your interest in this particular period of history. Yeah, uh, great question. Yeah. So I was particularly interested in uh, the second through the fourth or fifth centuries bec precisely because of what you actually just shared in the reason. As a Protestant, many people are not necessarily knowledgeable about or interested in this period, but I consider this period so... Uh, after the New Testament, um, one of the, uh, the most formative sort of uh, period of Christian history. That's, you know, during this time where the Christian theology is being uh, established. And this is uh, during this time, the Christian institution is being established and the structure and the liturgy and the uh, basic doctrines of uh, Trinity and all that. So, uh, I was really curious, um, uh, first of all, uh, you know, how those early sort of Christians um, survived to begin with, uh, you know, from a very tiny sort of a uh, sect uh, in the Roman Empire to, uh, you know, in the fourth century, basically reaching the, you know, the very emperor, the, you know, the throne of the emperor. Uh, converting to Christianity. So what really happened? I was also interested in the stories of persecutions and martyrdom, and mm -hmm. as well as the establishment of uh, Christian communities throughout the Mediterranean world uh, through the common sort of a 
context and through the common text, which is the scripture and common actually structure and common liturgy. Uh, um, so through the uh, understanding of apostolic traditions and the rule of faith. Um, so I was really interested in the uh, formations of the Christian communities during this time with uh, the rise of uh, their doctrinal understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Mm. And I remember, you know, a few years ago, hearing one of my intellectual heroes, you know, describing his day to day, you know, um, let's say devotional time. Mm. And he said, oh, I like to read um, a couple of pages from the church fathers mm. every day. And at the time it was like, I was like, why, why would you do that? There's we have the New Testament. But, you know, the the older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, that I greatly appreciate that that period more. And I'm glad that you're tapping into that. But, you know, getting getting to getting back to healthcare a bit more, um, if there is, you know, one primary source about healthcare from this period that you wish all Christians could be familiar with, what would it be? And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a Christian text. It could be a, a Roman text or whatever. But I'd be curious to know what you'd want us to be familiar with. Yes. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, so for as a primary sort of text in terms of healthcare, it is hard not to actually encounter Galen, who is sort of one of the most important doctors uh, of the uh, Roman Empire in the second century, uh, the court physician of uh, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. Um, so because he is the one who established basically the. Um, the Greco-Roman sort of the the theories of a sort of a healthcare um, that will actually last until the Renaissance time. Uh, so Galen, as you know, there are editions of a Galen in English. Um, so uh, different sort of uh, uh, collections of anthologies of Galen, and also there's a from Loeb Classical Library from Harvard University. There's a, um, a bilingual Greek and English sort of editions of uh, many of Galen's actually book. Um, so uh, that will be, I think, the fascinating read uh, for uh, many Christians, um, as well as, I mean, whether you are Christians or not. Um, maybe uh, if there's a Christian sort of a um, scholar, uh, if I can actually recommend, is, uh, is a Nemesius. Nemesius's On the Nature of Men. Nemesius was a bishop, Christian bishop in the fourth century. And he wrote a, a sort of a first of a kind of book, like a book on human nature, not necessarily through anthropological perspective, but more of a biological or physiological perspective, incorporating Galen's mm -hmm. sort of idea into uh, our sort of Christian understanding of uh, human. Uh, as a biological being. Mm -hmm. Okay, Nemesius on the nature of man. Okay, well, listeners, you can go ahead and get yourselves a copy of that. I'm assuming he wouldn't um, particularly do this, but like, are there any Christian thinkers through this period who are still going for the retributive vision? Yeah, so I, in the patristic period, yes, definitely. Church fathers, actually, many of the church fathers actually attribute um, uh, illness or the, um, the sickness or disease to God uh, for the reason 
because of uh, sins or, for example, church uh, father Cyprian attributing the persecution of Christians to God actually causing it or God ordaining it for the um, laxity of uh, Christians. Um, or um, And Christians also writing uh, about this illness of their enemies, the Roman persecutors, actually, um, how they became struck uh, by the illness as a punishment, actually, from the Christian God for persecuting the Christians, things like that. Okay, okay. Well, well you know, some of us, some of that might make us cringe a bit, or we might wish they were a bit more charitable and sensitive, but, you know, the the trajectory isn't always perfect and we do always as you were saying have to exercise humility and remember that these folks were processing the world through a cognitive lens that we might not have just through cultural happenstance um you know i would probably believe that if i was in their world so you know we we do have to wrestle with that um you know something that we have to be aware of that was also part of the lens during this period was um greco-roman medicine and something that I find interesting in your book is that you write the early church's appropriation and reformulation of Greco-Roman medicine and healthcare were instrumental in shaping how Christians defined themselves. That's, of course, one of the one of the central ideas in your book. Um, w- would you be able to elaborate a little bit on that for us? So I, I would say, you know, the Christians developed they're very multifaceted healthcare with the building blocks of the Greco-Roman healthcare system. So the Greco-Roman healthcare system consisted of various parts such as religious healing, rational medicine, uh, some targeted hospitals, uh, popular medicine, and medical philosophical therapies of the soul. Um, But the divisions among those things were very uh, blurred and each part of it in reality uh, tended to complement the others. So what we see happening in Christian healthcare is the mirroring of the Greco-Roman healthcare in the Christian healthcare system. So for example, Christians actually Christianizing the religious healing uh, replacing the pagan gods like Asclepius or the divine men like Apollon, uh, Apollonius of Tyana with now the Christian figures, first apostles, and then the ascetic holy men and saints as the main agents of healing par excellence. And Christians also incorporated and utilized a rational medicine as a matter of fact especially from the 4th century and on, along with the uh, religious healing. So, um, you know, you see this sort of relationship, divine and human or religious and secular sort of medicine complementing each other and sort of creating a synergy for each other. So this kind of model is definitely from the Greco-Roman sort of model. Uh, continuing even in the later sort of a tradition. Something something else, you know, you you bring out is the way that the Christians kind of developed healthcare systems and means of helping um, the sick in these centuries from the second century on. And was this something that was kind of unique to Christianity or was this also being influenced by Greco-Roman medicine and healthcare? 
Yeah, I I would say, I mean, uh, in a Greco-Roman world, typically the families did take care of, you know, the other family members and so on. But I think it was unique to Christianity, particularly for uh, within the Christian communities. Um, the strangers are welcomed and, um, you know, um, the the faithful's duty is a duty for everyone was care of the sick and providing the meals for uh, the sick. So that kind of sort of a ethos and a practice was very unique to Christianity, especially during the plagues. So I actually give examples on the, the mid third century during the Cyprian's plague, for example, um, you know, there is uh, two Christian sources actually talking about um, the Christians even actually perishing on behalf of their neighbors and uh, even strangers to uh, remain in the town to care for them and bearing people uh, uh, while many sort of uh, pagans having uh, have uh, fled the towns and cities. Um, so it, that sort of uh, was replicated in the fourth century when there is another sort of a pestilence in Eusebius sort of account. So um, that kind of um, you know, taking care of uh, someone else in the community, not blood related community, I, I think that's very unique to Christians. I, I think just uh, to be devil's advocate uh, for a second. I can imagine someone who who has more of a anti-Christian axe to grind might say something like, "Oh well, this is just the Christians trying to paint themselves in the in the best possible light and just saying, "Oh, look how great we are helping the sick." Mm -hmm. So, how would you respond to this, you know, possible model? I don't know if it exists out there, but people who might say, "Oh, this is just Christian propaganda," you know, this isn't actually mm -hmm. um, how it actually was. Yeah. Well. You know, uh, maybe to an extent, right, the Christian sort of uh, sources talking about their sort of uh, uh, commitment to each other and uh, life. I mean, there's uh, certainly some apologetic purposes in that. However, um, those are not the made up stories and especially the creation of hospitals, hospices and hostels in the fourth centuries and on. Um uh, those are attested actually in the pagan sources as well. Um, and um, Christians, uh, particularly the difference between the Roman hospital and the Christian hospitals is that Roman hospitals were only for a certain period of time for the certain kinds of people, uh, that is slaves and soldiers who actually had the greatest sort of a utility from the uh, empire's perspective to be used, right, for the um, empire. Whereas Christians actually established the hospitals specifically for those cannot repay. So the poor, the indigents, the strangers, the immigrants, the lepers, especially. Um, so, um, you know, to the point that uh, Julian the Apostate, um, so-called Julian the Apostate, the uh, the the emperor, Roman emperor, who actually uh, became uh, pagan, uh, having grown up as a Christian. So he actually attested that those Galileans, referring to the Christians, right, 
um, you know, how can we not actually do better compared to those Galileans who actually provided all this sort of care for the sick, especially through the hospitals? So I think the references are like that. And, um, you know, it's a very consistent references, even in Christian sources, that uh, how the actually established the hospitals, especially for those who are left on the streets, who cannot take care of themselves. And they uh, really treated them as though um, they they were of Christ. Mm. That's wonderful to hear. And, you know, that that is a good point that if it's, you know, if this is being attested by the by the pagans as well, then it it probably <laughs> is legit. So, well, we've we've had we've surveyed this a bit um, historically. I'd like to just switch gears as we close, just into theological territory um, once again. Is there um, a particular text in early Christian literature? Now, this could be the New Testament, or it could be the second century onward that that you find particularly helpful in a, in a pastoral sense um, as a Free Methodist minister in helping people cope with illness or or disease. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, it's Second uh, Corinthians twelve one through ten, where Apostle Paul talks about his own thorn in the flesh uh, and also God's grace. So there, in Second Corinthians twelve one to ten, we see uh, a divine passive at work as Paul was given a thorn in his flesh. Uh, he calls it the messenger of Satan to torment him, to keep him from being conceited due to his vision of paradise. I take his thorn uh, in Greek scholops um, as a chronic and recurring illness, physical illness that is uh, just really torturously debilitating, but not necessarily debarring him from his apostolic work. So God's response or Christ's response to his repeated prayer for healing is none other than that uh, God's grace is sufficient for him, Apostle Paul. And because God's power is made perfect in weakness, um, in human weakness. So this new revelation uh, sets everything in perspective for Paul. And uh, Paul would rather boast all the more gladly about his weakness so that Christ's power may be uh, resting on Paul. So um, here I see healing is not necessarily a divine favor per se, it's, but it's rather God's power or grace in weakness, illness, or hardship. So. Um, what I, um, even for my own sort of chronic illness and for others, what I try to sort of uh, suggest and encourage people is let's focus on God's sufficient grace, even in the midst of our thorns in the flesh, uh, rather than, um, you know, staking all our sort of uh, uh, hope and relationships on than the kind of sort of a particular healing that we want from God. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that should not dictate our relationship with God. But mm -hmm. what is actually important and real is that God's grace that is sufficient for every day, even in our um, 
sickness and hardship and suffering. Yeah, a- amen to that. And what I just love about that passage is that the view um, the Apostle Paul has, it's just so unique. Mm. You know, it's like, it, fe- it feels like you wouldn't get that kind of perspective anywhere else. Mm. You know, it just seems to be completely original to him. Mm. And of course, I- I'm sure he's trying to get the mind of Christ. I'm sure God God thinks the same way. But it's it's interesting the way you can almost see the, you know, the cross in what he's saying as well. Mm. Can you? Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the whole idea of my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's kind mm-hmm. of like that's just literally an image of the cross, isn't it? Amen. Indeed. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, God doesn't heal and and we have to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, is this um, like, have you ever witnessed, you know, a miraculous healing as an ordained minister? Because, of course, that's something that, um, you know, we have accounts of in your book that you discuss. And it's uh, something that, you know, books are still being published on today. I think of mm-hmm. Craig Keener's book on miracles, mm-hmm. for example, he's published a few on that. Yeah. So I'm curious, is that something you've come across at all? or? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did experience actually God's miraculous healing myself when I was uh, much younger, about uh, five years old or three and a half, uh, about four, around that time. Uh, I had uh, fatal osteomyelitis, uh, basically, that is uh, having a, a uh, infection in your bone, uh, which actually recurred every 15 days. And my parents, um, then I was uh, living in uh, Seoul, Korea, and they actually took me to five doctor, different doctors and specialists to um, examine me. And all of them actually uh, told my parents that it is too fatal and that they had to amputate my arm, but even the chances of living uh, with amputation is actually less than 10%. So um, uh, my parents uh, tried all the means, medical means uh, possible, um, but came to the point that um, they were just uh, sort of in despair and all they could have, you know, cry out to God, um, uh, you know, basically, yeah, uh, about my condition. And I remember my mom actually took me to um, sort of a retreat center, prayer sort of a retreat center just between her and me. And we were there for about a month to month and a half. Um, And during that time, some really uh, strange things were happening. Uh, I, I remember, so first of all, I actually saw um, uh, someone in my mind that was Jesus, but someone actually touching my left arm where the infection occurred. And by the way, that time my left arm was the size of my actually thigh because uh, there's all kinds of things were uh, in in my left arm. I couldn't wear anything with the sleeve on. Um, so it was very excruciatingly painful. Um, and, uh, so I actually shared that sort of vision with my mom and my mom didn't know what to do with it because she was not necessarily charismatic back then. And 
uh, and then another time, uh, you know, uh, something again, uh, unusual really would happen. I would actually walk on my elbows. Uh, again, unimaginable because of, you know, again, the lopsidedness of my arm and the pain it had. Um, so I would do that only when, uh, according to my mom, only when I thought that no one was looking. Um, and then another week, uh, I would just run in my circle, meaning that uh, I was able to move my arm as I was running. Uh, again, another sort of uh, uh, really um, unusual sort of uh, episode. So uh, after sort of few weeks of things like that, my mom took me to um, the doctors, the five doctors that who had examined me before. And they were all surprised, uh, according to uh, my mom, that the, the actual infection uh, they couldn't find it. There are all wow. still the symptoms and then, you know, pus and all these sort of things are going on, but the infection itself was gone. Uh, so they could not locate the, um, the cause of the infection. Um, so, uh, I mean, I and my family actually take that as a cause actually miracle. And, uh, unable to explain that through the modern medicine. Um, so uh, since then, I mean, it took a while uh, for this to heal, but uh, that's my experience of sort of a healing, uh, miraculous healing. So I do believe in miraculous healing and God's promise for that. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't necessarily stake all my hope in that because my mm -hmm. relationship with God is a lot larger than me being healed. Um, so uh, I then try to encourage others and also other faithful ones. Maybe uh, for, yeah, the same thing. Our relationship with God is a lot uh, bigger and larger than us being just healed from miraculously um, mm. so um, fullness and God's grace can be still experienced even in the midst of um, yeah illness or other challenges in life that that was wonderful to, to hear all that thanks for thanks for sharing that I think that will be a, a great encouragement to a lot of the listeners as well um, just to hear how God's worked in your life and um Wow. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be thinking about that uh, for the rest of the evening, probably. But, um, uh, you know, just, just in, in conclusion, um, that, that, that would have been an amazing note to finish on, but how, how does, you know, the, the early church attitude towards healthcare, um, you could argue that the, the moral transformation that came from early Christianity is just as miraculous as mm. any healing. So, how does the early church's attitude towards healthcare um, speak to the contemporary church? Do you think? Mm. Yeah, I think um, it really challenges the contemporary church to be more, I would say, inclusive or more thoughtful and more open to their practical sort of care of the sick. Uh, although we live in much sort of individualized societies with, of course, hospitals, clinics, and prescription medicines uh, all over. Um, 
So as um, you know, you mentioned it also, as I mentioned in the early church, visiting the sick and providing the meals for the sick, uh, along with the poor and the widows, uh, was the common duty of all the faithful, not just select sort of group of people. So, and that kind of intentional Christian healthcare developed and deepened the Christian community ethos and common identities as sort of a Christian. So I think their attitude and practices challenge um, the, the consumeristic tendencies of the contemporary church, church boards and members, because uh, we, uh, especially these days, tend to think about church as a place what what we can get out of rather than uh, what, uh, you know, how we can actually give and serve um, of ourselves. Um, so that that's one way that, uh, that uh, early Christian attitude to healthcare actually challenges us. And I'll say um, amen to that. And thanks as well for, for coming on the show. It's been amazing to have you on and to hear both your historical and uh, theological insights. So greatly appreciate that, Helen. Yeah, thank you very much for, uh, you know, this opportunity, uh, Patrick. I really enjoyed it and I hope I didn't necessarily um, went, jump off the sort of uh, all different directions than you, you expected, so. Not at all, Helen. You've been great and have uh, benefited and I'm sure the audience will benefit from the wisdom you've had to share with us today. So really, thank you. 